Good morning, ladies. I have two of my three daughters playing volleyball in two different cities, so you can count yourself very special because I don't like to miss that ever. Um, but there's, if I'm not doing that, there's probably nothing I would like to do more than open God's word with people. And I'm delighted I have members of my church family specifically. I, there's people here from sister or kindred churches in our area. We have some visitors, we have some guests, and I think you see some ladies that I knew from years ago that I get to reconnect with. Um, are we doing okay with, oh, there, is that a little better? Okay, now we're good, excellent. I don't hear myself as much. Um, so I want to commend you for being here. There's a lot of things you could be doing with a Friday night and a Saturday morning, but I, for one, believe that there's precious little that's more valuable than spending time in God's Word and growing in wisdom, because that will affect every other part of our lives. So I commend you for being here today, and I thank you for giving your time to do this. We're going to carry on talking about fruitfulness today. Um, I'll start by telling you a couple little things here. Uh, because of their limited years, children don't often understand how the natural world works as much as we do. As a kid, um, I actually spent most of my upbringing in the States, but before we moved to the States, I was in Woodstock, Ontario, and I still remember this place in the house. I put a, an apple seed in the electrical outlet in our hallway, and I, for months, walked by with this sense of dread that soon the tree would begin to grow out of the outlet, and then I would be in big trouble. Mom never found that out. This is my mother here. So we're okay. The tree never began to grow. And Taylor, my eldest, when she was little, she was enjoying a croissant, and she says, this is good. These must be really ripe this season. <laughs> Although I came to learn that electrical sockets are not optimal growing locations for plants, and Taylor does now know that croissants don't grow on trees. And we can giggle at these things because these natural rules are so familiar and predictable to us that we almost forget a time when we didn't know that kind of thing. And we can appreciate the familiarity of these understandings of the natural world because we learn so much from them. And it's so like God and so kind of him that when he gave us his word and his wisdom, he uses that so often because we can learn so much from them. So we're going to be looking at one of those passages today. If you want, you can open your Bibles to Matthew 7. 15 to 20. Um, the context of this, those of you who've uh, read through parts of the Bible, this is the end of the sermon, or near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives this wonderful sermon. If you haven't read Matthew 5, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 in a while, that'd be a, a delightful read. It's just one of my favorite parts. And what we get in this sermon is a snapshot of kingdom living. And as we're getting into the end of this, Jesus calls people to, there's a choice. They can take the broad road that leads to destruction or the narrow road that leads to life. And after that, right on the heels of that, he goes into a warning about people who could take us away from that path or lead us astray. So we're going to look at that warning today. And although we're looking at a group of people that we never want to become, and never expect that we are, we're going to take some time pulling some principles out of that text. They're going to help give us confidence in where we are spiritually and also help us more effectively bear fruit. So that's what we'll be doing with most of the time. Let me pray once more and then we'll get right into our text. Dear Lord, we do come before you 
uh, so confident that your word doesn't go out void. You tell us that. So there's not a time where we will open it when you won't do something in our lives. And so we all come here from different places, but Father, your word is true and it is rich and it is life-giving. So I pray that you would bless our obedience in coming here and putting ourselves before it. And we pray that you would do a work in our hearts that only you can do. And we will thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're just going to work our way through Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We see from this verse that there are people who appear holy, but they are not. And this makes them very dangerous because they can easily lure people away, seeking people away from the narrow road that leads to life, waving them onto the broad road. You're fine. Don't worry about that stuff. You're fine. Just keep going. Or they can confuse people who are seeking to follow Jesus Christ or who are following Christ because they look so much like the sheep. What they say sounds holy. The way they act looks holy. And on Sunday, they dress holy. And without very little, with very little deviation from the truth, they can subtly lead us to the slippery slope of license, and then we fall into sin that binds us. Or they can slowly tighten the stranglehold of legalism, and all of a sudden we find that the joy and the grace is choked out of our families and out of our churches. Either way, if we allow them to, they rob us of the freedom God has given us. So because of this ever-present reality, because these people were present back when Jesus was preaching, and they're present very much today, we have to be discerning about who we yield to and who we take direction from. And to do that, we have to be able to identify them because they are disguised. They are wolves in, sheep clo in sheep's clothing. But we don't have to panic because we have a way to discover who they are. First part is 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. So we can recognize these dangerous people. And we do that by their fruit. And when the Bible speaks of fruit in the human sense, except in Song of Solomon, that was a different kind of fruit, typically though with humans, it means everything that a person says and does. It is what we produce. So this is how we identify dangerous teachers. We look carefully at how they act and speak, and then see how well that lines up with the teaching of the Bible. And then at the mention of fruit, Jesus starts to give us a little science lesson. Reading on. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So in asking this rhetorical question, that's obviously going to be answered no, because we don't go to the backyard to the weeds to pick strawberries, right? We know where we have to go find certain fruits. Jesus is referencing a well-known scientific law that was established back in creation in Genesis 1, and we observe it in everyday life in agriculture. Let me read this from Genesis 1. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then if you keep reading in Genesis 1, there's mirror image wording for every other biological 
creature that he created, and God saw that it was good. And this is a good law or phenomenon, this kind-bearing kind, because think of the chaos in agriculture or animal husbandry if the opposite was true. You plant corn and you end up with rutabagas, or you breed cattle and you get lizards. It's absurd. Our whole global food system is contingent on this kind-bearing kind law. This is a kindness to us in this way. And then Jesus, when he introduces this kind-bearing kind, he uses the word so, which means in the same way as what precedes it, and then he transitions from like-bearing like-kind to like-health-bearing like-health. So with the same confidence we know a mango will produce a mango, we can be sure that healthy things produce healthy and unhealthy breeds more unhealth. Doesn't matter what it is on the earth, it will reproduce an organism of the same nature. <clears throat> and then we see in verse 19 the practical outcome of an unhealthy tree. So we sort of move from, from this science to maybe gardening or business. Now to what, what do we do with this? In verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the reason people keep or cultivate fruit trees is to reap fruit that's edible and nutritious and delicious and therefore either good for consumption or for profit. So if you decide that a tree is unhealthy and it's not doing what it should do, it's not fulfilling its purpose and it'll be cut down and thrown into the fire or the wood chipper these days. We could say that the tree's ultimate fate is determined by its health, which is evidenced by the fruit it produces. And now Jesus wraps up this science lesson and pulls it in together with the warning in verse 20. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So thus, which means in the very same way, that the fruit tells us whether a tree is healthy or not, we can determine the spiritual condition of a person by the health of their spiritual fruit, by the actions and words that they produce, because those things will always betray a person's true nature. So just like the predictability of like-kind producing like-kind is good to us in the physical sense, that predictability is a kindness to humanity in the spiritual sense because we are able to discern who are the good-natured, spiritually healthy people and who are not, and thereby make informed decisions about whose authority we place ourselves under. This is a helpful teaching for today's audience, just like it was with the original audience, and we can use this tactic to protect ourselves, our families, and our churches from the teaching of toxic people who present themselves as spiritually healthy, but they're actually not, because they're out there. They were out there then, and they're out there now. So we, that, that's the passage. So the purpose of this passage, as we can see, is to help us protect ourselves from those who teach bad doctrine. But the benefits of this, I don't think, need to be restricted just to this aspect alone. Because personally, as I was studying this, I came to learn a lot about spiritual confidence, increasing fruitfulness, avoiding self-deception, and reconciling inconsistencies in my life. Does anyone need any help with any of that stuff? Okay, so th that is actually what we're going to look now, spend the rest of our time looking at, are some of these principles we can draw from the text and how we can apply them in this way. All right. So, the first thing I want to point out, <coughs> and we're going to start kind of with the heaviest thing first, get this out of the way, 
Number one, our eternal state depends on our spiritual condition, so we should know what it is. It is worth our time to consider the fruit of our life because the quality of our fruit reveals our spiritual condition for good or for ill, which is the indicator of whether we will anticipate judgment or justification when we stand before God at the end of our lives. He created all this. He gets to make the rules, and he has the right to call his creation to account. And that can sound really scary, but do you know what? Undergoing a judgment is not a bad thing if you go into it knowing that you're going to be declared not guilty. That is a wonderful place to be, and that's the place where I would like to see you get if you are not there already. We saw a picture of that judgment in Matthew 7, 19, where we, talk, where we talked about the good tree remaining and then the bad trees being thrown into the fire. That's a very common biblical image for the judgment we will face one day as we stand before the Lord to account for our lives. And then it's spelled out more explicitly in a very similar passage in Matthew 12, where Jesus is again talking to the Pharisees, these false teachers, and going at them for a certain fruit. It was actually the fruit of their mouth, the way they were talking. So let me read this in Matthew 12, 33 to 37. He says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, People will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So justification or judgment based on the fruit. Now, I need to clarify something really important here. It is not the quality of the fruit that saves a person. That would be salvation by works, which is completely unbiblical. The Bible teaches in, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it is by grace that we are saved through faith. It is not a result of works so that no one can boast. So we're saved only because Jesus paid the debt that we owed when he died on the cross. And this glorious legal transaction takes place, right? So he died, he took, we had this, this unpayable sin debt. So he took that sin debt and he transferred it to his account and it's on his account and he paid for it. But at the same time, his righteousness, all the good that's in his account, he transferred to our account. That's beautiful, and that's how I know I never have to fear judgment because I know that I'm not going to be viewed as owing anything. I'm not going to be viewed as guilty anymore because I have nothing to pay for. That's beautiful. But it's not just this legal or positional transaction that happens. At the moment that we acknowledge our sinfulness and at, fall on God's grace to save us, we are reborn. We're regenerated. We are given a new nature and are now able to produce good things that we were not capable of producing before. So hear me when I say the fruit does not save. The works do not save. But we have to understand that the fruit is a necessary evidence of the regeneration that's happened because of God's grace. 
John Piper says, if your faith in Christ leaves you unchanged, you don't have saving faith. Obedience, not perfection, but a new direction of thought and affections and behavior, fruit, shows that your faith is alive. So we can't say that we have faith and then have no outward evidence of it. That's unnatural. We're shown that biblically that's impossible because it's universally true that what we produce reveals what we are. And on that evidence, when a person stands before God, that person is either justified or judged, and we should care and look carefully at the fruit in our lives to see what our spiritual fruit is indicating about our spiritual health. Now, all that being said, God doesn't need to see the fruit because he can see our hearts. We know in all the other teachings of Scripture, God is omniscient. He says in Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Or in 1 Samuel, for the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So that's comforting to me. We don't have to worry that somehow God's going to get it wrong. Like, we die on a day when we're PMSing, we're up all night with a kid with a split eardrum, the washing machine broke, and the dog vomited on the carpet. And then God looks down and says, whoa, that's a lot of bad fruit, that must be a bad tree. No, that's not going to happen. Just like God is not fooled by pretty looking fruit, that's rotten on the inside because he sees the heart. He can see our heart, and he's not going to get it wrong. He knows who are his. But I, I think he gave us this fruit as a kindness to us, as an outward evidence, so that A, we can identify people who might be dangerous to us, and B, we can use that fruit as an evidence to get a read on our own spiritual condition. Which leads us to our next point, in that there is an external way to determine our internal condition. And we're going to do this by looking at what the Bible says the speech and behavior qualities of a Christian are. What, what is the fruit of this healthy tree? And then we look and see if what we are producing is consistent with a generous, or sorry, a regenerate heart. Because like kind produces like kind. A few chapters earlier, when John the Baptist was having little altercations with these Pharisees and calling them brood of vipers, he says to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that Greek word for in keeping with means worthy, befitting, or congruous. God wants his people to bear fruit that is consistent with a nature that has been regenerated or made new by God's grace. Now, we could do this kind of fruit inspection with any part of Scripture we read. What, what does this say? What are the marks of a believing person? And then hold the fruit of our life up to it. But just for fun, we're going to go through a quick little exercise through the book of 1 John. Because A, it's one of my favorite books. And B, two of the express purposes in the book of 1 John is that believers in Jesus Christ will know that they have eternal life. And that we can have confidence on the day of judgment. Well, that's kind of what we're talking about here. So let's look through that. Um, what type of fruit reveals a healthy condition? So as I just walked through quickly in 1 John, there's a few things. One of the things, it says that we will recognize and confess that we're sinful. So I hold up the fruit of my life. Is that what's coming out of my mouth? 
Have I gotten to that point? Have I said that? Have I confessed that this is true and I need his grace? He also says that we know we're believers, we know we're Christians if we keep his commandments. That's a lot. But let's just list a few things, maybe even within the Sermon on the Mount. So I check the fruit in my life. Am I loving my enemies? Am I shining my light in a dark world? Am I avoiding being angry? Am I keeping my word? Do I treat other people the way I want to be treated? Do I honor my marriage vows? Do I forgive people? Just to list a few, right? So we're to keep his commandments. That's a characteristic of a healthy tree. Is that what I'm producing? We're told that we know we're Christian if we live as Jesus lived. Am I compassionate? Am I truthful? Am I loving? Am I full of grace? Am I self-sacrificing? Am I submissive to the Father's will? Another mark or piece of fruit or characteristic of our fruit is that we love our Christian brothers and sisters. In a five-chapter book, that comes up five times. This is important. So, is my love for my Christian family evidenced in how I speak to them, in how I speak about them, in how I interact with them, in how I serve them? And is that true of the people in my immediate church family sphere and the people beyond it in the other churches that I know? Another way or another characteristic of the fruit of a healthy tree is that we practice righteousness. That's just a way of saying we live virtuously and we have correct way of thinking and feeling and acting. So am I sexually pure? Am I choosing not to be anxious because God is sovereign? Do I honor my civil authorities? Do I pay my taxes? Do I treat children well? Do I refuse to gossip? Do I honor my parents? Do I honor and benefit my employer? Do I help people in need? Do I not show partiality based on someone's social status? So many different ways. So I look, what is the fruit of my life showing when I compare it to this? Another thing we see in 1 John is to show that the evidence of the Holy Spirit is working in us. Angie did a great job talking to us about that last night. Is this fruit, this collection of beautiful qualities, is that present in our life? And are we growing in those things? Look at the fruit. Another one, it says in uh, chapter 4, 6, do we listen to godly and biblical teaching? So are we prioritizing learning from wise people? Is that a fruit evidenced in my life? And the last one there from that list is that we don't keep on sinning. It's not that we don't ever sin. It's just saying the verb tense there tells us that it, we should not be continuing on in a willful, indefinite pattern of sin. So you can do this with any part of Scripture. As I read and see the marks of a tree, a, a fruit, a heart that is regenerate, is the fruit of my life matching up? Is it congruous? When we look at this, we can accomplish a few things. If I see good fruit growing, it can give me confidence that I am a regenerate, healthy tree. It can encourage me when I see growth in the sweetness or the beauty of the fruit that I produce. Or it can challenge me if I see inconsistencies between what I should be producing and perhaps what I am. Or if I look at this and I hear this and I see that I'm not producing good fruit and there are no indications of good fruit, it may be kindly revealing my need for a change in nature. And we will talk about that in a little bit. All right, point number three. As we do this kind of evaluation, we want to make sure we're honest with ourselves because even in our fruit inspection, point number three, it is possible to deceive ourselves about our spiritual condition. 
These religious folks were dangerous because they looked so righteous. They knew the literature, they knew the terminology, they knew the culture, they even knew how to look elite within the religious culture. But what's particularly sobering to me when I read this is it wasn't just the church attenders or other people that were being deceived. These folks put so much stock in their external expressions of religiosity that they even deceived themselves into thinking that they were good with God. It is possible for us to be deceived this way, and we need to acknowledge it, because these things wouldn't be here if this wasn't an issue. And that the scary thing about being deceived is that we never know we're being deceived. So we have to stop and take stock. I want to read a few verses that come right after our passage. So after the warning about false teachers, listen to this. This is very sobering. This is Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It is possible to perform great-looking spiritual deeds and have no saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And then earlier in the same sermon there, in chapter 6, he's talking to the Pharisees, he's telling us a few other things. Let's see what's there. In 6.2, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Verse, or sorry, chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So what's consistent in all of these? Jesus calls them hypocrites because the good they did was just an attractive mask for the bad intent, which was just to be seen and praised by others. These were good-looking deeds completely disconnected from any life-giving relationship with God. So it goes to show that the same righteous activity could be done by two different people. And one is a pleasing gift to the Lord, and one is wicked. And one is a good piece of fruit, and one is rotten. For example, I can pray so that others will hear me and think I'm so bright and be impressed with my insights and my eloquence and be totally intimidated to pray around me because they could never pray as good as me. Or I could pray because in my humility I'm expressing a dependence and a need for God's guidance and wisdom. And I can do that because I desire to draw near to the Lord and be close to him. Same deed, totally different piece of fruit. I can give because people will praise my benevolent spirit and maybe put my name on the plaque at the community center at the church where I donated the money to this thing. Or I can give out of a grateful recognition that everything I have comes from God and I want to give to further his kingdom and to use that, those, that money to practically show love to people. Same action, completely different piece of fruit. I can teach the Bible because it gives me power over people. It gives me respect and it might earn me a little bit of cash. 
or I can teach the Bible because I'm sobered by the obligation to use my mind and the voice that God has given me to draw as many people to become mature followers of Jesus Christ who beautifully display his nature to the world so more people will want to come and know him and be saved. Same action, totally different piece of fruit. It is not good enough that our fruit just looks good to other people. These folks were the poster children for goodness and religious zeal until Jesus came along and exposed them. Their fruit wasn't grown out of a transformed heart in response to grace. It was formed and festered from within the roots of a proud heart and blossomed into this ugly pursuit of personal glory. So doing righteous looking things alone is not enough because anybody can produce a good looking piece of fruit. We have probably all bitten into one of these before and it looked beautiful and it was pulpy and dry and awful and we ended up throwing it away. Anyone can produce something that's good looking. So we also, as we do this analysis and look through our life and hold up our fruit, we also need to dig down a little bit. And if we can't find any God-centered origin for the fruit that we are trying to produce, we may be at risk of deceiving ourselves about our spiritual condition. This warning wouldn't be here if it wasn't possible. And as we head into our last point, I'll share with you a thought that, came up as I was studying this. I put myself in the place of a tree, and I thought, so if an arborist was brought in to assess me to see if I was a healthy tree or an unhealthy tree, it got a little bit murky, because I'll let you in on a little secret. I don't always produce good fruit. And I'll go out on a limb here and say that I might not be the only one in the room. But I know I'm redeemed. I know God has regenerated my heart. I know that when I stand before him, I'm only counting on his righteousness that's been credited to my account. I love the things of God. I love the people of God. I love the word of God. I love to obey God. So many biblical evidences that I am a healthy tree. But I'm telling you, there are some days when I serve up bitter fruit. Just ask my family. And I don't think I'm the only one in the room. So how do we reconcile this? How do we view ourselves if we believe we're legitimately regenerated women but still produce bad fruit sometimes? This was the biggest question in my mind as I was studying this. So it helps us to remember, point number four, that we are more complex than trees. And I'll explain. I'm thankful that the same imagery comes up, this imagery about bearing consistent fruit, comes up somewhere else in the New Testament. And good news It's addressing this matter to Christians, okay? James 3, 8 to 12 says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So we're seeing here again, though this is unnatural, and it shouldn't be that we bear fruit that's inconsistent with our nature, it seems to happen, because this was addressed to a group of believers. So at least we know we're not alone in this struggle. Christians have been dealing with this for a very long time. 
I appreciated uh, Douglas Moo and his commentary on this passage. He was reminding us that humans aren't trees. He said, the automatic processes of plant life cannot be exactly compared to the willing, uh, deciding processes of human life. So we certainly learn a ton from the plant kingdom, and God shows, holds this up as a very clear example to us that consistency in bearing fruit is good, and what he desires from his people because it's an accurate picture of his nature to the world. That's why he wants this. But we are not simply biological creatures. Add to that that we are emotional creatures, we are relational creatures, we are intellectual creatures, we are spiritual creatures. So compared to a raspberry bush, we're wrestling with a lot more complexity when we're trying to bear good fruit. But if we have a regenerated nature, this ought not to be. So why is it a part of our normal Christian experience? So for me to try to reconcile this kind-bearing kind law with our daily Christian reality, I had to call a friend. So luckily, Scott Black, owner of Lakeside Tree Experts, is a member of our church family and helped me take this fruit analogy a little bit further. He said, because I asked him all these questions, he said, in an agricultural or horticultural setting, it would be safe to say that nothing that is from the good tree would cause the fruit to be or go bad. But as is often the case in nature, an external factor could target a weaker piece of fruit on the tree. This is completely consistent with biblical truth. I was so happy to hear that. In 1 John 3, 9, it tells us no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. There's the seed image again, the like bearing like. Just like a goat is going to produce a creature that has the nature of a goat, God produces creatures spiritually that possess the nature of God. Being born of God, it's like we have his spiritual DNA. That's our nature. So we can produce beautiful, amazing fruit that's life-giving. That's amazing, and that's the nature part of fruitfulness. We can bear good fruit because he's changed our nature, and we're like him in that. But we can't be ignorant to the external factors that could affect our otherwise good fruit. And this is the nurture part of fruitfulness that I want to draw our attention to as we wrap up. So I asked Scott what those factors could be. And he said one of them would be drought. It's where we have no intake. There's no nutrients. Uh, a tree or fruit could be bad because of overexposure. So there's no shade to protect from drought and wind and unrelenting heat. Or maybe there's too much shade, which makes the condition damp, and that breeds disease. Or maybe fruit is impacted because there is a broken branch, and part of the tree is compromised in its ability to get the nutrients. Or maybe it's touching a tree that's toxic. It's too close, and it's being transferred, that disease is being transferred. So as true as it is that we are now able to produce good fruit, because of what God has done in our nature, that doesn't mean that we are without responsibility to nurture our growing environment because external sources threaten the good fruit that we could produce. So the question for us is, what are we doing to control the factors around us to protect our good fruit and keep it from being marred? 
So let's look at a few ideas. We can take this list that Scott so kindly gave us, and let's look at this as it might apply to us spiritually. So let's look at the, the issue of drought. Am I positioning myself to take in the needed nutrients to bear good fruit? Am I regularly part of a Bible-believing church that is growing my biblical understanding? Am I regularly participating in fellowship with other Christians for encouragement? Am I studying my Bible in between Sundays? <clears throat> Excuse me. What about overexposure? Am I managing my life so I'm not overexposed to the elements of life and culture that deplete me? Am I building in rest or shade from the incessant busyness? Or maybe our issue is too much shade. Are there secret areas of darkness in my life that are causing things to fester? Is unconfessed sin creating a sickness in my spirit? Is my unwillingness to forgive someone creating a slow rot? Or maybe it's an issue of a broken branch. Are there things that I could strategically prune around that damaged area to take some pressure off? Or do I need to seek external help to prop up and support this broken area so that it can heal? Or maybe it's touching a tree that's toxic. Are there people or media influences in my life that are spreading illness to the fruit that I could produce? And I have one more that Scott didn't mention, but I've seen in, in my own life and in the life of other women. We'll call this out-of-season growing. Am I straining to produce fruit that is underdeveloped and sour because the conditions and the life season are not optimal for it. We can believe the world's lie that women can do everything all at the same time. I believe we can do most of the things we want to in our life, but we might have to space that out over seasons. But sometime in this need or in our pride wanting to do something right now, we're trying to produce fruit in a season that's not uh, right for the fruit that we're trying to produce. So maybe if we're a little more patient, we can, be we can be producing fruit that is sweet and beautiful, not underdeveloped, because we can get it done, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be as sweet and nourishing as it could be if we waited till the right life season. If we are Christian women and God has given us a new nature, we can produce fruit that is life-giving and nutritious and delightful, but let's also make sure that we're taking some practical responsibility to nurture our growing environment so that what God can produce in us is optimized and that fruit is increasingly consistent with our God-like nature. So, as we conclude here, what are the implications for us personally? I think we can fall into one of three camps after a study like this. I could study this and I could conclude... <clears throat> pardon me, that I am not a healthy tree. I am not pleased with the fruit that I produce. My fruit is angry and selfish and proud and fearful and petty and joyless and try as I might year after year, I, cannot, I just can't muster up this strength to produce the fruit that I want to. And if you're here today and you've come to that realization, 
That is the worst news of the day, and it is the best news of the day. Because once you come to that point, you realize that there's also this invitation out here, that God, as he saves us from our sin, he gives us a new nature. And so he can take what is rotten and festering, producing all the yuck in your life that you don't enjoy, and he can change that so you can produce the things that you desire. If that's where you are, please come talk to me. I would love to talk to you about that. Second place I can find myself is that I am a healthy tree consistently bearing grade A fruit. And if that is you, can I please have your phone number? Because I would like to be your friend and we can have lunch. Uh, in seriousness though, rejoice in what God has done in you, that that is where you are. And, and let us see that because that's encouraging for everyone else coming along and reach back and help the rest of us that are still dealing with some not so great fruit at times. And the third place we may find ourselves is that I am a healthy tree, but my fruit isn't always perfect. I'm raising three athletes, and it is really hard to keep fruit in the house. One child who will remain nameless, uh, the middle one, can go through a melon in one sitting. So I've had to move from buying the more expensive apples to these ones I've found. They're, they're naturally imperfect. So I get this big honking bag of fruit for a lot less money. And then that way I can kind of keep them fed. The thing with these apples is they're from a good tree. They're nourishing. They're fragrant. They're delicious. They're just a little marred sometimes, but they're from a good tree. So this is kind of where I find that to me, this is, I'm this bag of apples. I'm, I'm a little bit imperfect there, but I know I'm from a good tree. And so my goal, this is where I find myself in my life right now, and after this study, my goal is to look at the factors in my life and say, what am I doing to contribute? Because God will produce beautiful things in me. I just want to make sure that I don't get in the way of what he can produce because of some of the decisions and choices that I make in my life. Because our goal should be to, to show this nature to the world. And the more beautiful the fruit is that we can produce, the more that is delicious and delightful and alluring to people. And they will come and they will want to have that same relationship with Jesus Christ because of the beauty they see formed in our nature. So that's the goal for our fruitfulness. And I pray that as you go out, you'll be considering these things and see what we can do. Rejoice in what God can do in us, but then let's make sure we're doing the things that we can do to never hinder this beautiful fruit. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this time. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the wonderful rules with which you set up this earth and, and how it's governed. We thank you for all we can learn from that. And Father, we want to be fruitful women. We want the world to look and see things that are beautiful and life-giving and attractive and that would draw them to you so they can be saved and know the joy and the peace and the freedom that we do when we come to be right with you. Father, I pray that you would take this word, plant it deep in our hearts, and that this would continue. The word itself would become a fruitful thing as we go out from here and enjoy the rest of our time together. Father, at the same time, we thank you for the food that we're about to receive. Thank you for the ladies that have prepared this, and I pray that that would nourish us and get us ready for one more time where we can open your word and learn and grow wiser. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.